I want to preach today, uh, here's the topic, I want to preach on uh, this subject, biblically endorsed lifestyles. Now before you all shut down and think we're going to get a sermon on marriage, uh, no we're not. We're not getting a sermon on marriage. But in the current debate about marriage and what it means, uh, I think it can be of value to remind ourselves that the Bible endorses two lifestyles, which when adorned with one relational quality, are deemed valid in the eyes of God. That was actually, I thought, a really well-crafted sentence, but don't worry. <coughs> Singleness and marriage between a man and a woman are both valid lifestyles from a biblical perspective. And when both those lifestyles are characterized by fidelity, then before God, they are valid and acceptable. That's especially important, I think, for us to uh, recognize, uh, particularly in modern Christian circles, where marriage is often upheld as the only ideal lifestyle, and singleness is seen as an anomaly to the purpose of God. Some of you might like to go home and look up the word anomaly. You'll find it is in the dictionary. I didn't make it up. Let's also note... I think that in our culture, the number of single people is far greater than it was 50 years ago, irrespective of the reason why people are single. Um, but the Bible reveals many successful single lifestyles, whether by choice or circumstance, fulfilling God's purpose for their lives. Think, for example, of Miriam. Or Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law. Or Winnie, now you're thinking, the widow of Zarephath. Or Vera, the widow with two mites. Or Anna, the prophetess. Or Mary and Martha. Or Elijah. Or Daniel. Or John the Baptist. Or Paul the Apostle. And if you're not impressed with any of those ones, well, think about Jesus himself. They were not any less because they were single rather than married, were they? And today I'm wanting us to focus a little bit more on singleness and the integrity of that. And for those of you who are single, you'll be thinking, oh, at last, maybe. For those of you who are married, you'll, think, you'll be thinking, you shouldn't be, but you might be thinking, oh, well, I'm not going to get anything out of this, am I? Uh, wrong attitude. You'll get a lot of, out of this. And guess what? You probably were just thinking the way single people often think when they hear sermons on marriage and feel a little excluded in the way it's done. Have you noticed what prevailing culture upholds? Doesn't necessarily guarantee validity. For example, this past week I was looking at an article entitled The Six Ingredients for a Longer, Happier Life. It was a paper that was presented at a conference by a leading geriatrician. You might get the humor in that. From the University of Sydney. <clears throat> the title, The Six Ingredients for a Longer, Happier Life. The title told me that length of life and happiness are sought after and are important. So you can have a very happy life, but you don't necessarily have to live a long time to have that. Here's a thought. And the content of the article told me this. 
it's said that the first three things you have, the first three ingredients are to do with looking after our physical bodies. That's pretty much the emphasis in our culture. Look good, you'll feel good. I know a lot of people who look good, but boy, they're miserable. The fourth and the fifth principle was to do with emotional well-being in the context of relationship. And finally, the sixth uh, was on finding a purpose in life, something bigger than yourself or something beyond yourself. So stop and think for a moment, how, what does the Bible say about finding a happy life? and having a long life. And what does it emphasize in the order of the emphasis? You'll find in 1 Thessalonians 5, and if you're, uh, whoever's on the computer could bring that up, that's great. Paul says in one verse ex exactly what we need to know about how to have a longer life and the ingredients. He says, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, small s, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the Bible is telling us that the spiritual is a thing that's foundational to life. It comes first and it's the key to the quality of life. So I want to ask this morning this question. What can we learn from the scriptures about successfully living as a single man or woman? And I want you to turn to Acts 27, the first eight verses, to have a look at, what, what, at the passage I want to focus on. Remembering, of course, that Paul the Apostle is a single man, to the best of our knowledge. Acts 27, 1 to 8. And remember, of course, this is not a downloaded sermon from the internet. This is personalized specifically for us as a church. I don't mind podcasts and I don't mind listening to sermons from other churches. Although I never do it, I have to admit, or rarely do it. I'm more interested in getting a personal word from God through whoever is leading the service in my own church for that day because that person knows my personal circumstances and situation and the environment that I live in. So I want to have the faith to believe that God can speak through that person into my life. And that's what I'm hoping happens today for you. That you actually get a word and you think afterwards, you know, that was a personal word. That was a word that had some life for us. And remember, it's not my preparation that will guarantee that. It's your preparation as well. So about a month or two, two, two months ago at least, when I'd been asked to do this week and next week in terms of the services while the pastors are away, <coughs> I finished our Acts Bible study one night, and or it was in the middle of it actually, in the middle of it, and I felt the Lord say to me as I was saying something, I want you to preach on that the first Sunday. And so this, is, this comes from then. comes from a couple of months away. I haven't been slaving for two months over this. Um, but I have known what I needed to focus on and what I needed to use. So let's read. This is a story about Paul heading for Rome, having already been in prison for two and a half years, or in house prison, if you like, being examined by Festus and a whole stack of other people, governors and important people. So he hasn't had a lot of freedom to do what he wants to do for two and a half years. And so 
we read the following, and I think you should turn to someone and say, I am so pleased that Peter didn't get me to read this out aloud. And about halfway through, when we get to some of the names of places and people, you'll understand why. It was when, it, and when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adrium Tium, or something like that, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting, away, uh, putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with dif difficulty off Snyders. And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting, uh, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. <clears throat> so what can we learn about singleness? In giving us the details of the beginning of Paul's voyage to Rome, Luke tells us, just in those verses, the provision of the Lord for Paul in the friends he gave Paul, uh, gave Paul to not only accompany him, but to be with him along the way. God gives us friends to help us. And that's a key element in life, particularly if you're single. But even if you're married, having good friends who are Christian, not entirely Christian, but some of the friends being Christian, is a good thing to encourage us and to strengthen us, especially in difficult times. And one of the transforming results of his conversion to Christ for Paul was that he became a loyal friend to others and had a host of friends who cared deeply for him. The lonely, friendless Pharisee, who was very goal-focused and oriented in pursuing this Christian sect to kill as many of them as he possibly could, that man, who was a little cold and heartless when Stephen was being stoned to death perhaps, that man, who was so driven to prove himself, loyal to God, that man, once he met Christ, learned and discovered the benefit of becoming a loyal friend to others, and he had a host of friends who cared deeply for him, some of whom, as we'll see today in the passage, he hadn't even met, probably. The lonely, friendless Pharisee had been changed into a man who could give and receive profound love as is expressed in faithful relationships. Wherever he went, Paul established a deep bond of love with people who became lifelong friends often, even if he didn't agree with them always. We see Aristarchus referred to in this passage. 
Aristarchus is a good example. And I know you probably know all about Aristarchus. He was among the converts during Paul's ministry at Thessalonica. If you go back in the book of Acts, you'll see that. He was with Paul through the dispute with the silversmiths in Ephesus and was arrested during that conflict. And so that indicates that at some stage he'd come from Macedonia to assist Paul while he was in Ephesus. And Aristarchus accompanied, I, I, I always feel as if I want to say something like Aristotle or that guy Onassis, something like that. Aristarchus accompanied the apostle to Jerusalem and was with him for two, the two and a half years that he was both in prison and also being uh, before courts and being interrogated by governors and so on. The protracted trial that took place. And when it was time to sail for Rome, the loyal Thessalonian was permitted to accompany the apostle as his servant. Now that's a pretty good friend to have as a single man. Luke was also with Paul. We know that because in verse 2, us is referred to or we. We put to sea is the exact uh, translation or the words used in the ESV. Uh, and that's pointed because it could be that Luke was actually um, emphasizing that Paul was not by himself, but Luke himself was actually with him along with Aristarchus. The beloved physician was with Paul every step of the way throughout the whole of this voyage and probably in the years beforehand. And his admiration and loving esteem for Paul flashes throughout the account of the apostles' ministry in the whole of the second part of the book of Acts. Or you could actually turn to any of Paul's epistles and read the closing verses. You'll find the closing lines uh, feel, uh, have a warmth of friendship that he's expressing towards friends that he had in the Lord in the places to which he was writing. It's also interesting that Paul won friendships among the most unlikely candidates. If you read between the lines, we observe that he boarded the ship for Rome as no ordinary prisoner. We don't know what instructions Festus had given to the Roman uh, cohort, Julius. But Luke uses a term um, which tells us that Paul was seen in a slightly different category, perhaps. The use of heteros uh, for other in verse 1, and Paul and some other prisoners, does suggest, according to some commentaries, a difference in category. Perhaps Festus himself, the governor who sent Paul to Rome, was a secret admirer of Paul's courage. Whatever was the case, there's no doubt in those eight verses, if you read them carefully, that Julius the centurion treated Paul with respect and gave him privileges not accorded to the other prisoners. For example, he was allowed to go to his friends in Sidon. Now, there's no mention that Paul was ever in Sidon. So how could he have friends there? Perhaps they moved there. Perhaps at another period earlier in his life, not described by Luke, he knew people there. But these were people he knew in God. They were Christians. And Luke indicates in the verses that we read uh, 
what was the secret of Paul's ability to make and keep lasting friends? Because he says that as Paul went to Sidon, along with him, the two of them, Paul went in order to receive as well as give. He went to care for them, but also to receive care for himself on the way in his trip. Paul established great friendships because he allowed people to love him and to meet his needs, just as he met their needs. And that's the key to great friendship. Having the give and take. Having times where we actually receive as well as give. It's one of the things I like about the Father Heart message. Um, it's the fact that we are, we are encouraged to, to feel okay about receiving, which in our culture many of us don't. But we're also encouraged to give. Lonely Christians are those who have confused strength with independence and self-reliance. We are not meant to be independent. We are not meant to be people who can tough it out and do it ourselves. A strong person is a person who is able to receive and share openly how they're doing just the same as they are to reach out, able to reach out and give when there is a need and to care for others. Doing things for people makes friends and allowing them to do something for us as well forges lasting friendship. And of course, behind we need to remember that behind all truly great Christians is the one who said, no longer do I call you servants, but friends. In John 15, verse 15. Paul was on his way to Rome in these eight verses, but he wasn't lonely or alone. Christ and his friends were with him. So let's turn to chapter 27 once again, this time verse 27. Paul has just had an encounter after 14 nights. They're facing their 14th night at sea. And he has an encounter with an angel of God who says to him, you'll be going to Rome. No one will, uh, will die of, uh, from shipwreck and so on if they stay together. And, and then we pick it up just after that. He's told the others this. When the 14th night came, verse 27, had come, and as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. Who was now in charge of the ship? As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength. For not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. That's more significant for some than others, that statement. 
And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all the people, he broke it and began to eat. He wasn't taking communion, but he was acknowledging God before he ate. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Because it was a, if you knew the background to it, it was probably an Egyptian ship that was a cargo ship that took wheat um, heading towards Italy. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, one thing I've said, had said to me, especially by single people, is that a married person is someone to talk to during the difficult times, notably night time. Every married person here knows that's not always the case. <laughs> In this reading, we see that making it through the night is not easy. In the night hours, worry and fear stalk their prey. And you and I, we've all known restless nights when sleep eludes us and our minds multiply our problems. Conjuring them up into more grotesque monsters than they really are. Now, I thought that was well crafted, don't you? But isn't that true? In the night, when things are not going well, we're feeling alone, even if we're married, we often, but particularly for single people, things become all encompassing, far beyond what we should really, the perspective we should really have. What can we do to make it through the night? Well, if you look at that passage that we've just read, 27 through to 38, what Paul and the sailors did on the 14th night at sea provides a good parabolic image for what we can do to make it through the night. When they sensed they were drawing near to land, they sounded the depth. First 20 fathoms, then 15. The fear of going on the rocks was real, as it often is. Everything's going wrong. What is happening? I'm all alone. To slow the drift until morning, they let out four anchors, they prayed for day to come, and they lightened their load. And I want to say to you quite clearly, particularly you single people, when things seem dark and foreboding like the night, like those on the ship, we pray. But for Christians, that prayer is also our time in which we let down our anchors. Now I want to ask you, what are your anchors that you let down intentionally in the midst of the night when things are dark, particularly those of you who are single? What are those anchors for you? And in saying that, I'm specifically focusing on something that requires self-control. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's about not allowing your mind to run right and your emotions to flood your thoughts so that everything overwhelms and you get a perspective that's so blurred and blinkered that you can't really see. Self-control is about, okay, I actually have a capacity in God, not only as a human being, but particularly because I'm, I'm realizing I need to pray. I have a capacity to order my thoughts under the leading of God. I have a capacity to get a perspective 
and to not let things overwhelm me. That's what I'm talking about. We have that gift, uh, that fruit from God, and we have that capacity. Next week, I'm going to uh, preach a little bit about how we nurture and develop that. But all of us of Christians, we're not simply because we're charismatic, dead from the shoulders up. We have a capacity to think. We have the capacity to develop and nurture wisdom. We have the capacity to take passages of Scripture and to apply them in our own lives. We have the capacity to pray in a way that is consistent with the will of God and in, in alignment with His purpose. I'm going to suggest four anchors that, that are good to use. Knowing that you might already know them or that you might have other ones that you like to use. The first one is the anchor of faith. In the darkness, I meditate on and I say the names of the Lord that reflect his, his, his nature. I actually always start in those sorts of moments. I, I intentionally choose to pray in tongues. Because I find that for me, if I pray in tongues for a few minutes, the awareness of the presence of God comes and uh, um, there is a sense in which I'm able to hear more clearly and see more clearly in my praying and in my meditating. Now, you can pray in tongues by using English as well, by the way. So I meditate on the names of the Lord. I, I remind myself he's my healer. He's my deliverer. He fights for me. He saves me. He provides for me. I go through those sorts of things. I remind myself and remember the time of my conversion as a, as a 12-year-old. And I also um, think about when I got baptized in the Spirit in my early 30s. And, and I remind myself of those things. Moments, special moments in life, I remind myself who God is in the midst of my own confusion and uncertainty. But I'm doing that to reestablish my thinking and my thought that God is the one at the center, not the problems that I'm facing or me. You know, the word subject or submission in the Greek literally means to come underneath and to uphold someone else. So when we're submitted or subjected to God, we have willingly chosen, not being forced, to come underneath and lift him up in our lives and in life generally. We could say that about friends. We could say that about pastors, our leaders. We're coming underneath and we're lifting them up. Submitting ourselves to the purpose of God in serving them. And in serving them, we're serving God. I digress, but you get the drift, I hope. Renewed faith comes in the middle of the night when we let down that anchor of faith. Renewed faith in God comes from that type of meditation stating who God is and what he has done for us in Christ and what he does for us by the power of his spirit's presence intervening in life situations engenders faith at that moment for the night the second anchor is this an anchor of surrender it's the surrender of the need or the concern of the soul to God our father we need to surrender our need 
Whatever it is that's troubling us, we need to surrender that. And all too often as Christians, uh, what we do uh, is that we hang, we reach out to God with one hand in prayer and we hang on to the problem. And what God is saying is both hands. Let go of the problem. Reach forth in prayer. Let go and surrender. And we're not good at surrendering. I don't know about you, but it takes a lot to kill that need to hang on. So often in the darkness of night, the struggle is intensified by not surrendering. But freedom comes only when we release our needs by casting the extra weight overboard. Letting go the need, not allowing that to be held on to. Third anchor is this, the anchor of hope. Emil Brunner, who is a noted theologian in some people's eyes, made this statement, What oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope for the meaning of life. What oxygen is to the lungs, such is hope for the meaning of life. And hope, I would define this way. Hope is a combination of trust in the faithfulness of the Lord and trust in the perfectly timed invasion of His Spirit into our affairs. Or to put it more simply, our hope is that God will act on time and in time. On time and in time. And I remind myself of that. I have a hope. Reminds me of that song we used to sing, I Have a Light. We won't sing it now, but I used to like that song. Because it lifted my eyes and gave me hope. And the fourth anchor is the anchor of thanksgiving. You're alone in the midst of things. You don't have to be lonely. The anchor of thanksgiving, thanking the Lord for the problem of the night, gives perspective and inner strength. Thanking the Lord in advance of the solution breaks the bind of worry. And remember I said, thanking the Lord for the problem. You might not like the problem, you might not want the problem, but thanking Him after you've surrendered that problem is very important because thanks is giving expression not to the surrender but to the hope it gives a perspective when we give thanks in the midst of difficulty in the midst of the problem of the night giving thanks in advance of the solution breaks the bind of worry and it expresses our willingness to cooperate with God in the solution we're not saying you have to do it all We're saying we're with you in the midst of this and we'll work through it with you. You know, it's often when we get to that point of thanksgiving that we realize what the next step is and what we can do in the midst of that problem. So I want to end with these questions. I know that it's getting close to time and I didn't want to break the tradition, so I thought I'd go over time. Um, we're going to end with communion. And I'm going to end this sermon with some questions because I do not think that 
Coming to church on a Sunday morning is about information. I think it's about being challenged with a word. And it can be the worst sermon you've ever heard and God can still use it brilliantly in your life. So it's not necessarily the quality of the preaching, it's the quality of the listening and the prayerfulness associated with hearing a word spoken into our lives and our circumstances. And that's why I often like to, when I get a chance to preach, to end with a question or two or three. And so I'd ask this of you. What do you need to surrender? Particularly the single people. What do you need to surrender to? To God. To let go of. And the second question is, what do you need to give thanks for? And I think in the context of our culture for a moment, just an observation, you know, with all the debate that's been going on about the same-sex thing and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I, I understand principles are very important and foundations of society are very important. But, you know, life's going to go on in God. There is a way forward for us as Christians, irrespective of the result. I'm like you, I've already... Uh, possibly I've already voted, I'm not changing my mind, <coughs> and uh, I voted clearly no. Um, <coughs> but I recognise that the no vote may not win. Is that the end of my life? No. Is that the end of Australia? No. Is that the end of our hope that revival will come through the land and it doesn't matter what people vote? No. Is that... Mean, does that mean that I won't have opportunity to be offended again by someone? No. You see, sometimes issues can become more important than they are. This is a very important issue. Don't let me underestimate it. And I agree with a lot of the things that uh, are being said about what could happen if we go this way. But even if we do, I, I know one thing. We'll find out who genuinely are Christian and who aren't. And that's not a bad thing. And so it's not only what we need to surrender. What do you need to give thanks for? In the context of life and problems. To not just to surrender them, but give expression to your hope by giving thanks and saying, Lord, I don't know how this is going to work out, but I'm thanking you for this issue. That too is important. So what do you need to surrender? What do you need to give thanks for? <clears throat> remembering, of course, that God has a way ahead, even if modern culture whips up a storm and tries to shipwreck his principles and his purpose. And thirdly, what anchors your life, your life in the night? When times are dark, what anchors your life? Amen. We're going to uh, have communion. I'm going to ask two young men who have strength. Don't come forward, Alan. Don't come forward, Paul. To come up and move the pulpit over to that side, please. Could you do that now? I'm also going to ask that um, the prayer team, if you would uh, come forward, uh, first of all. That's stretch. Well done. <laughs> I was talking to Brendan. Just over, over there, yeah, out of the way. 
We're going to, uh, and I know the time, so if you have some emergency thing you need to get to, yeah, come up after the prayer team. I want the prayer team to come and have communion first. And we're going to have it kneeling. Um, and I'm going to ask Tony if you'd come and just uh, do your thing too, please, just in terms of worship. And after the prayer team have had communion, they'll go over that side. If you want prayer, please go and uh, see them, either before or after you have communion. And the rest of us, when it's time for you to, um, uh, when there is a space here, uh, as people come and go having communion, uh, please just know that you can come forward and take communion when you're ready. I'm doing this for this reason. Uh, the last few times I've been um, able to lead the service, I have felt very strongly the importance uh, of some of the things I learned in my childhood. And one of them was when we had communion, we'd come and kneel at the altar rail. I'd be happy to have an altar rail. Um, and there is something very important for us about coming and kneeling before God that I think we've lost in modern culture. Uh, it brings a sense of humility. It also brings a sense of perspective. Doing it together brings a sense of friendship um, and not being alone. And uh, I would like us to uh, be able to come and <coughs> recognize that when we take communion, we are reaffirming our baptismal vows. We're not saying we're perfect, but we're saying that we believe in what we committed our lives to when we were baptized. Or for some of us, it would be what our parents committed their lives to, and you're the fruit of it now. So when you want to come forward after these folk have had communion, feel free to do so. I'm asking you to, if you physically can't kneel, uh, just take a chair and put it and uh, sit in the chair and someone will come and give you communion. I'm not going to do a benediction at the end. Once we've, you've had communion, you're free to go. I just would say to you that after communion, you will feel blessed by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the friendship of the Holy Spirit. Sure. Some of you are feeling that already. And I'm also not wanting you to have to rush off because there are times where it's important to just come into the presence of God. And just take time. It's a holiday weekend. You've got time. Allow this coming week to have an anchor. Being here in this service. Making God a priority. Not just allowing life and all the other things of life to crowd that out, but to make it a priority. Go after communion, having knelt before your loving Father and God your Maker, for whom we all give an account. If you have children, go and get them once we start communion in order to bring them forward. Is that okay? So, we're going to pray. Would you join me in this communion prayer? Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you don't look for perfect people. You just look for people who limp. People who know their own frailties and inadequacy and instead reach out in faith to you with both hands. 
We know as we come that this last week we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. There are things that we've done we shouldn't have done, and there are things that we should have done that we didn't. As we come to communion, we confess those things, and we ask for your forgiveness, Lord Jesus, and cleansing from unrighteousness, which the Apostle John wrote under your inspiration that you would always give to those with a contrite and tender heart. May we do this in faith today, Lord. And may we know that you are the God of peace and the God of hope, the God of love and the God of faith. May we surrender to you afresh this day. In the name of Jesus. Amen.